So. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, wait. This is not uncomfortable, but it's very weird. This is the thing? This is the one. Absolutely. And now it almost couldn't have happened in a better way. Where did you want to be? So it was just like, ah. Oh. <laughs> am I funny? Now if I go over here, am I still funny? Better strategy. Yeah, a way better strategy. I never thought about that. Yeah, it's a work. I don't see it five years from now that you're not my most famous friend. You really have to commit to something. Good to have something pushing you. That's that cool. That was really cool. Yeah, it might have been cool. This is On The Cusp. Hello, and welcome to On The Cusp. I'm Ben Green, and today's guest is Dan Lippert. He's an inspired improviser on the Herald Team Winslow at UCB. He is the tallest member of the sketch group Big Grande, and he was really fun to talk to. This week's episode is sponsored by Thai Pepper at 6219 Franklin Avenue. You've got to try their seafood radna for $7.50. Thai pepper. Who needs a tiebreaker when you've got Thai pepper? So one of the surprises that came out of my interview with Dan Lippert is that I didn't know that he had done a guest star role on the TV show Workaholics, and he got to do that pretty soon after graduating from college. Um, it's an interesting illustration of something that I really didn't know in high school um, and middle school and growing up, which was when I thought about what life in Hollywood would be like for an actor. I thought once you got your guest star role on the TV show Workaholics, then everything else was handed to you on a silver platter. But that's not what happens. Um, I think that that thing is a cool thing that you can say and put on your resume, but nothing really magical happens after that. It doesn't end up being a guarantee of getting an agent. It doesn't end up being a guarantee that more shows like that will come afterwards. You just have to keep on doing all the things that you're doing to make the next thing happen in whatever weird way it ends up happening. I think I learned this myself um, when last year I had one of the coolest things that's ever happened to me happen. I got cast um, in a small role as a video game executive in a Disney movie called Alexander and the Terrible Horrible No Good Very Bad Day, which has been released recently. And I thought, okay, I just got a movie role. My life should probably be really easy from this point forward. But no agents were chasing me down. I asked friends who had good agents if they could refer me, and they did. And that didn't make anything happen. It's not that it won't end up maybe being a part of the puzzle that leads to cool things happening eventually. But it also might not be. And that's just one of the hard lessons I've had to learn from being in Hollywood. You can get your role on the TV show Workaholics. You can get your role in the movie Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. And me and Dan are still really scared that things aren't going to work out for us. But we are encouraged. We feel lucky for the good things that are coming our way. And you can hear us talk about all of that in this interview. So here's my interview with Dan Lippert, who is such a tall person, who has such a deep voice, and is... A uh, really great guy. thought uh, I've been getting different opinions of like what this podcast should be altogether. 
Because basically, my conceit with it is uh, that these are people who I all like, kind of think are going to be really successful someday. Already, kind of are. Thank um, you. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, just like people who are are probably not at the level yet where they would be asked to do WTF. Right. Um, but I think it's interesting to get like what they were thinking about right now. Yeah. Um, or like what. You know, you hear on WTF a lot, people talk about what it was like to be anxious yeah. at this age. And we're uh, currently anxious. And we, are, we are currently anxious. We're currently, <laughs> we're, like, they say, like, oh, I was worried it might not work out. Yeah. And, and right now, we're currently worried it might not work out. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I think um, uh, Ricky Lindholm has, like, she, uh, she's in Garfunkel Notes. Mm-hmm. She has a podcast that's, like... If, like, WTF is, like, that step, <clears throat> hers is, like, the next step down, usually. Like, not, like, success-wise, but, like, it's usually, like, a little more uh, process, I think she has. Is yeah. like she Like, her thesis was kind of, like, people don't know how people got to where they are, and, like, that was kind of the point of it. Like, what the steps you took. So this feels like the next step down from that. <laughs> like, people that are currently going through the process. I might call it... A step below Ricky Lindo. A step Lindo. below Ricky Lindo. <laughs> I definitely mean quality-wise also. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, that sounds like an interesting idea. I like interview podcasts already. Uh, so. If you if you were listening to the Step Below Ricky Lindholm podcast, what would you want to hear out of it? Um, I, f- I feel like you're pretty close to the idea that I would think I would want out of it. Would you, like, because, so on WTF, the format is usually you hear... Like, they banter for a few minutes, and then you hear, like, then he goes like, so, what did your parents do for a living? Right. Where'd you grow up? Yeah. Oh, I grew up near Arizona. Yeah, near Arizona. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like... And then he goes to their current stuff. Yeah. And, he, and now he sort of almost does just, like, more of a filmography, which, instead of, right. instead of like, the best part of the show, which was... Him fighting with people and apologizing yeah. to them. Yeah. <laughs> like, explaining why he was so mean to them for, for 10 years. Yeah. Uh, and then being like, I didn't think I was being mean to you. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I like that take of like banter into like interesting stuff. I My instinct is like, does anyone care about me bantering? You know what I mean? Uh, but maybe they do. I, like, you know, people usually will put up with anything interesting. I don't know if they'll seek it out, but they'll put up with it if, they, if it's, like, something that they're told is good. Does uh, that make sense? Yeah. My aspiration is to make something that people will put up with. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Put up <laughs> with Tolerate stuff, as like, much as possible. I'll tolerate. No, but, like, I like bantering stuff, but, like, I wouldn't seek out, like, a podcast between, like, James and Eric <laughs> if, like, I didn't know who they were already. You know what I mean? Uh... uh I don't, want to, I don't want to embarrass you, but James and Eric is currently number one in iTunes. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. I'm so out of the loop. But, like, I think the casualness, like, it is, like, the thing that makes the ideas interesting is probably, like, the casualness mixed with, like, interesting topics, so it doesn't feel like a forced interview. Yeah. Because, like, people are actually talking as themselves, which I like. So, Dan. Yes, Benjamin. So, you're from Arizona? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I grew up near Arizona. <laughs> uh, 
That would be either New Mexico, Utah, <laughs> Mexico, or California. Oh, New York City. I grew up in New York City. Oh, you didn't grow up anywhere near. You grew up where Arizona iced tea is brewed. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> you grew up near the Arizona iced tea plant, then. Um, the U.S. is not that big. You don't think so? No. Yeah, the US. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I grew up in Tucson, which is like the southern, one of the southernmost big cities in Arizona. That's where you were born? No, I was born in a town called Page, which is on the Arizona-Utah border. It's like a tourist town. It's right by this lake called Lake Powell and this big dam called the Glen Canyon Dam, which powers, I think, like Las Vegas, some of Las Vegas, California, and Arizona. It's, uh, the Colorado River feeds into it. Uh, anyway, it's like a small classic small town and my dad uh my parents owned when i was born one motel there and then by the time we moved three motels that they built good motels uh kind of like standard middle of the road motels like definitely not hotels but like uh everything you would need from a motel on a vacation what was it called the navajo trail motel um uh, is there any Navajo in them? In the motels? In the, your parents? In my parents? No, neither of them are Navajo. Uh, but, like, Page is right by a Navajo reservation. So that's, like, the the population is, like, Mormon, Navajo, uh, um, other religious fanatics. And then we were, we were one of two Jewish families in the town. Uh, and that both from, like, with Jews from Israel, interestingly enough. Which I feel like is weird for that. So both place. your parents are from Israel. No, my mom is. My dad <clears throat> is from Minnesota, uh, and my mom met my dad in the seventies when she was at Lake Powell. Uh, like she was just visiting from Israel, and this guy was swimming the lake, like he was doing the stunt of it for whatever reason. Uh, and my dad was like captaining the main boat. Uh, that was like the hub for it and my mom and her friend were volunteering on it um, and then she met my dad that way did she have an Israeli accent she yeah she and didn't she, know she barely knew English oh wow yeah so she met him and he probably didn't speak any he didn't speak any Hebrew no I, I honestly don't know the like courtship between them I don't know what exactly happened it sounds really sweet in this version where she's only speaking Hebrew and he's it is a pretty sweet story it sounds like story the recent episodes of Louie yeah it is like Louie <laughs> yeah she, I, she must she knew basic English but like I don't think there was no communication at all um but I think it like she still has a like a, a relatively thick accent I mean she speaks English fine uh can you imitate it at all no okay. I'm very bad at imitating I we did a practice an improv practice where uh, I got that I tried to play my mom and it was very unsuccessful. <laughs> <laughs> I have like no real concept of uh, how to do her accent. A lot of people think it's French when they hear it. But I feel like there's overlap between Hebrew or like what would you call it a Hebrew accent? Or yeah. An Israeli accent? Israeli accent. An Israeli accent and French. Yeah. There's a lot of. Uh, M, uh, M, uh, uh, like thinking work life type of things that they do. At least Israelis do, and I think French people do too. Uh, 
And I think like THs can kind of come out like Ds, like there is a lot of, there's like a lot of that. Do they both speak fast? Yeah. Israelis speak really fast and really loud. They're like the mo- they're very obnoxious when they're like having a standard conversation. And French people are obnoxious too. Yeah, I'm, well, I, I'm not willing to say that because uh, uh, I don't have any French in there. my French teachers were all obnoxious. <laughs> okay, and <laughs> they were all French people also. Uh, no, actually, you know, you're people who speak French are all obnoxious. So I went to the UN school, so uh, like a good number of my French teachers were Vietnamese. Really? Yeah. What's the UN school? There's uh, like a school for people in families of UN. Yeah, a lot of my classmates were diplomat children. Who was a diplomat in your family? Nobody was a diplomat in my family. We just were right next to the school. Oh, really? Yeah. So I was like the in the minority of people who were not who had no ties okay. to the UN. So it wasn't like it just happened to be the UN school. It wasn't like the UN ha- own, had a school that they put on. Like it was affiliated with the it UN. It was affiliated with the UN. Yeah. It, That's crazy. That must have been like an amazing education. Yeah, and a very interesting, uh, like, unique experience where you're in the minority, like, where every single student is in the minority. Because, like, there's just as many white kids as there are Japanese kids, as there are, like, kids from Ghana, as there are kids from. That's cool. Any other country. It's a true melting pot. Uh, did you. Who's. Your most like unique ambassador friend, like uh, child I, of a, I mean, I dated uh, the daughter of the ambassador, like to the United Kingdom. When that's cool, man. That must have been a great person to date. I'm imagining she she's like a dream girl to me, like a British. She was a lunatic. Oh really? She, she's she was like this Scottish girl who was like really into sadomasochistic kind of stuff. Holy cow! Uh, she ended up. I, I, yeah, it was like a lot of stuff I wasn't ready for, uh, and yeah, she was cool. like, she was very druggy. Very, I couldn't understand hardly anything she said because wow. her th- Scottish accent was so thick. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought she was really pretty. What an intense relationship! My yeah, friends of didn't think she was pretty. My friends were oh, like, really? were like, it was like the first experience of a girl that like my friends were like, she's not that cute. Like, yeah. don't. And I was like, I really think she's cute. I think I'm going to do this anyway. Do you have a type? The, like, did she uh, look yeah. anything like Madeline does? No. No. But uh, she looked more like my old type. Really? Your high school type? You were kind of into, My high like, school type. I was into... I liked girls who looked, like, a little bit punk. Yeah. And, like, were, like, tiny punk... Tiny punk... Punky Brewsters. Punky... <laughs> oh, punky Brewsters, not punks. I, in a... Eighth, no, tiny punks. In eighth grade, there were two Dans in my class. Me and Dan Miller... And for some reason, the teacher didn't want to have two kids named Dan. So she decided that I was going to be called Punky. And I don't, I honestly don't remember where on earth that came from. It's such a weird, stupid nickname. You were going to be Punky? Yeah. (laughs) Did it come from anything? I I, I can't, it must have been like, I think it was something along the lines of like last year we had two students with the same name and I called, and one of them wanted to be called Punky. So like maybe that's where it came from. I don't remember now. Though. I love you as a punky. <laughs> yeah. I was punky, and then in high school, I was Big Julie, because there were two big... I was big, and there was another guy, Dan, who was Big Dan. So my teacher started calling me Big Julie instead, which is from Guys and Dolls. 
And you were aware of that reference? I was aware of the reference. That was more like playful. Like that teacher and I had a playful, fun relationship. That's nice. So my, like my class shirt, senior class shirt, everyone's name is on the back or they can pick the nickname. So mine says Big Julie on it. Um, so did you grow up like experiencing Jewish stuff? Yeah. My mom was like, it was very important, especially in Paige, because it was like so, such a culture shock for her. It was, like, really important to keep us in the tradition that she had grown up with. Because, like, she grew up on a kibbutz where they were atheists. Like, her family was atheist. But they were still, like, very traditionally Jewish. So they still celebrated all the holidays. And and is that kind of what you were being given? Like, this atheist version of Judaism? Uh, Yeah. I mean, there was never... until Until I could, like, talk in any sort of educated way about it, there was never any talk of atheism or anything like that. But it was more, like, the focus on tradition, not, like... The like, like fear of God or anything like that, or the idea of God having an effect on your life was like non-existent for for me. It was just whereas like, most Judaism is just the fear of God. It's all fear, yeah. <laughs> it's the fear of mom, which is like, <laughs> like a God thing at the end, probably. Um, but we like my mom was just like, and so even in Tucson, then like she would try to have all our friends over and like teach them about the religion. She was like very into like teaching them about the traditions and like what they would like what each holiday meant. Uh, but we would never go to temple or like do a whole long beginning to end Seder and all that bullshit. It was just Uh kind of like more like talking about the meaning behind everything and like why it exists. Were these friends, Navajo and Mormon friends? I had an, well, I was only in page till I was six uh, or five. I had a friend named big Ben who was a Navajo kid. And then my friend Darren, who, uh, they weren't Mormon or Navajo. I don't remember what they were. They were, like, Christian. Um, uh, and so, like, we were, like, best... We were, like, a little threesome of five-year-old <laughs> kids that ran around doing stuff. Uh, so you had to leave that that Big Ben and... Yeah, my mom forced my dad, basically, to leave Paige. I think he probably would have stayed there for a long time. For any reason? Uh, it was just, like... It's it's a small town. Like people there don't like my mom. Like really valued education and like wanted us to get a good education. And like, I think my brother was kind of bullied for like being like smart-ish uh, and Jew-ish, um, or at least like wasn't. You know, I don't think he loved his school experience there. I don't know if he was actually bullied. Um, and it's just like. You know, it was the, she could see that it was, like, the classic small town where it's, like, you could be stuck there forever. Like, a lot of people we knew, uh, like, kids we grew up with ended up, like, getting into drugs or all that bullshit meth and, like, stuff like that. Or, like, having, like, their high school pregnancy right there is insane. Uh, so she really wanted to move and kind of, like, move my family to Israel and that, like, was a mess because it was, like, a huge culture shock for my dad. And, like, it just was never going to work. Um, and so then we moved back to Page, and then we moved to Tucson. I don't really know why Tucson. I think my dad had lived there in the 60s and I think just, like, knew that it was a place that he could live again. Um, so we moved there when I was seven, and that's where I mostly grew up. And do you remember your childhood as being pretty much happy? Yeah, I had a great childhood. I, there, there were, like, three years where I was, like, the biggest shithead in the world. Like, my friends still make fun of me for it. My mom would, like, teach us Hebrew school. She was, like, me, my friend Zach Tyman, my friend Evan, Brad, and this girl Gabby. And I would, like, flip off my mom. This was, like, 11, 
12 years old, I'd like say fuck you to her. Like I was like such a little prick and I have no idea where it came from. I could have been the biggest shithead in the world. Uh, like today I'm not. You have no idea where it came from. I like, really, I, this, I, looking back, this rebellious feeling. I think. It, I think looking back, it's because like my dad was going back and forth between Tucson and Page because we still had the motels there, so he would he would be gone a lot. So I'm sure it was some sort of reaction to like the lack of structure. Like he was definitely the one that I was like did not want to make upset or like wrong in any way. Not that he would like. He was just the the he had like gravitas, so you didn't you know want uh him to be mad uh and my mom i think was just like it was very chaotic for her and she didn't know how to control me i think did you feel bad while you were being kind of bad no i feel bad now i think i was just a little shithead i don't know what my deal was i was just like acting out i guess and also really smart at that time um really smart i think i was a relatively smart kid yeah um i think i was always like near the more educated end of my class, but, like, less motivated. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, ever skipped homework and stuff like that? No, I would do homework. I, like, uh, I just, uh, it all, I've always been really good at, like, getting by. Uh, yeah. Like, I, like, writing a, a, a mediocre paper and getting an A on it. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm not because I'm some sort of genius, but just because, like, I think I know the basic system. I know how to read what teachers want. And so I was always good at just, like, fulfilling that and never actually, like, challenging myself yeah. creatively. As a 12-year-old, did you have anything that you felt passionately about? I think I already was, like, really into... Act, like acting or like not acting necessarily but like comedy like I, I watched The Simpsons religiously I watched SNL a bunch I was doing like we had drama club and I would do performances where I like did the van down by the river scene and I did like uh, a lip sync a, a cross dressing lip sync to I Will Survive um, sounds fantastic we did 12 Angry Men and I chose to play my character basically as a poo. Like, I was just, like, an Indian guy. <laughs> and I, I, I'm, the character's not written Indian that I played, but it was just, like... Which juror? Uh, I don't even remember which juror it was. It was... I was 12. Yeah, I can't remember. And then, like, my, me and my friend Evan did, like, the the Simpsons, like, I'm only a Bill. Did you see that? That was, like, making fun of Schoolhouse Rock. It's, like, a song. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we did that in, like, a performance. So it was that was, like, what I was into. It was shit like that. <laughs> Um, was your voice as deep as it is now? As no, as, as I, uh, I had a ridiculously high voice for a while. And then I think I went through, I, went, I think I had a relatively late puberty. Um, but I was like in choir in high school and I, my teacher told me I was tone deaf, uh, <laughs> in choir. I think my voice probably got lower around like senior year. Were you a tenor? No, what was I, I wasn't, so it's like bass, baritone, is tenor above bass? Uh-huh. I think I was a tenor then, yeah. Um, but yeah, I uh, I don't know when... Because I wasn't the tallest until probably junior or senior year of high school. Whoa! So that was like a fun surprise for everybody. I was tall, like, but I wasn't the tallest until then. Okay. Like, I, I announced basketball games. Like, I was on the court side, like, doing that. And I was taller than the tallest kid on our team. Uh, but was just... But didn't want to play? I wanted to. I... 
didn't love the coach and I, I was doing theater and so you couldn't do theater and basketball like you couldn't commit wholeheartedly to both of them at the same time so I, announcing I could still like go to the games and participate but like you didn't have to practice and all that stuff and be athletic and good were you funny as an announcer no it it was mainly just it was it wasn't color commentary it was like the literally announcing to the people in the stadium so just like this guy scored this basket uh uh like foul on whoever that type. Of I would stuff. have really liked to hear color commentary. <laughs> I did one color commentary uh, of a women's game. Me and this kid uh, Stephen Katz, who uh, um, happens to live in LA now, and act which he didn't at the time, and we used to uh, um, we announced a game together. Uh, and so that's probably out there somewhere. I would love to listen to that. I'm sure it was yeah. awful. <laughs> this sounds amazing. I'm sure I was so bad. Me announcing high school women's basketball must have been the worst thing to listen to in the world. Um, did you feel right then like I'm gonna grow up and be a comedian and like try to get on Saturday Night Live or something? Yeah, like that? I think I wanted to be like Mike Myers. I wanted to be like, yeah, Jim Carrey, those dudes. Um, that was kind of the goal in high school. I was like, yeah, that's what I want to do. And that goals stay consistent through college or did you ever have a period where you were like oh that's impossible no yeah i feel like goals shift uh at least for me i start tempering my goals with what i think reality is because it starts it's like i want to be the like the biggest comedy actor in the world i want to be like you know whatever jim carrey mike myers will ferrell and then it's like oh i that might not be possible, but I want to be, you know, I want to be a, a famous comedian. I want to be known for comedy. I want to be famous and in movies. And then that turns into like, oh, I could, I, I want to be on a TV show. Like I would do a show. And then that like becomes like, I, I would love a guest star role. And it's like, I could be a commercial actor for a living. I could just like make commercials and then like still perform and live and all that. That'd be great. Um, and then it becomes like, I would love to just be in a writer's room for anything. So I think you just like... Until you get to, I'd love to be the funniest guy in an office. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'd like to be like, you know, at least once a week, make everybody in the office laugh. Maybe not the funniest guy. Uh, but yeah, I, it occurred to me recently when I was having a, like my, my one of those meetings with a manager that's like, you have to put your best foot forward. And he was like, what, where, where do you want to be? Like, what's your actual goal? And I had to like reassess what the truth was, not like what the goal that I tell myself is so that I don't feel bad if I don't achieve it. You yeah. Know? But like the act, like the, what would be the coolest thing that you actually Cause you don't want to tell that manager you're yeah. very adjusted. Yeah. <laughs> I would, I would love to have been on an episode of the office. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, that would have been sweet. <laughs> so if you could make that happen, uh, but yeah, you have to like readjust and like really like what is like the dream goal, so you can actually like take the steps towards that one. Like you can't achieve a goal that you don't actually like admit that you have. Um, but in college, high school and college, I was like taking theater in college, um, and the whole time was just like, yeah, I want to be a com comedic famous for comedy cool when did the like giving the finger to your mom stuff fade away 
Just middle school. It just like stopped around middle school, I would say. I, probably when my dad was around more, if you looked at the actual, if you matched the timelines, is what my guess would be. <laughs> there's an exact correlation yeah. between you and around more. <laughs> I'm sure, uh, because there's no way I would have acted that way around him. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think I just became a normal kid. And then it was just like, I never really acted out with my parents. Uh, like in high school, like the biggest thing I would do is just like, I would be upset that we went on a vacation over the summer because I couldn't hang out with my friends. So I just wouldn't talk to my parents for the whole vacation. I wouldn't be mean to them, but I would mm -hmm. just be like mopey. Uh, did you remain a person in high school who was just uh, getting by? School -wise? Uh, uh, yeah, everything I, it feels like for a while, everything I've done where has ended up being like a cool, fun thing someone has had to push me into it. Like, I never auditioned for plays until our theater teacher, Mr. Erb, cast me in Noises Off without auditioning because someone else dropped out. So he cast me as, like, an understudy because he, like, was trying to motivate me. And then I did an audition for the next round of plays, and someone dropped out of Into the Woods, so he cast me in that. And then, like, so finally I started auditioning for stuff and actually being motivated and, like, getting doing the work and getting the roles. But yeah, I even think like going like going into comedy and acting like part of it is because it's just easy to me. Like it's <laughs> the thing I have to work the least at to to feel like I'm get good at it. Were you also a reader growing up? Um, I wouldn't say I was a reader. I read. I was more of a TV watcher. Mm -hmm. uh, me too. Like I watched a ton of TV. Uh, it's insane that I'm not like a crazier person. Because uh, I watched a lot of TV. I watched, like, Jim Carrey and The Cable Guy amounts of TV. Um, <laughs> like, when we had to read in middle school, you'd have to, like, count your pages and turn them in. And so I would always read uh, Garfield books. Because uh, you could read, like, 200 pages of a Garfield book. So you're very well-versed in Jim Davis. I've read, yeah, I've read Garfield Choose the Fat. I've read uh, uh, Garfield... Uh, uh, I can't remember the rest of them. Bigger and Blacker. <laughs> <laughs> that's a Garfield yeah Garfield larger than life uh, no I can't remember. choose the fat was the only one I can think of off the top of my head but I had like all nine lives had, like, uh, that's not one that's one no I'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> um, Dan no, I believe you I believe uh, not now <laughs> don't call me out now <laughs> I'll, uh, yeah, I'll feel free to look it up uh, and then I had like a Beavis and Butthead book so I would like read that. And were were these page book. counts accepted? Yeah, yeah. I got, like, they, let, they let me get by on them. I don't know how. I kept thinking these were biographies of James Garfield. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> James Garfield Choose the Fat. James Garfield Nine Lives. Um, but yeah, even with like reading in school, I could get by pretty well knowing the basics of a book and writing a paper about it. Like if you listen in class, you can then write the paper about the book because it's like... Yeah, I get what happens here. Like, Frankenstein makes a monster. The monster is a metaphor for the Industrial Revolution. Uh, monster ends up on some sort of ice thing floating away from Dr. Frankenstein in Antarctica. And You're yeah. all set. Yeah, that's a paper right there. Uh, what do you think was the coolest thing about you as, like, a middle school or high school student, like, other than being a good performer? Uh, I really prided myself on being chill, like not like nothing got me razzed up or anything like that. I I felt like that, and I think like 
I wouldn't have ever said it at the time, but I thought it was cool that like I was not friends with everybody, but knew everybody and was friendly with everybody. Like I could like, I could have like, I wouldn't have personally been comfortable, but I could have like gone to the cool kids hangout and felt fine there. And like, I could have gone and hung out with the theater kids and felt fine there. And I was on student council and like felt fine there. I think I was like, that was something I took personal pride in at the time. I was like, yeah, this, uh, being generally chill. Yeah. That's a cool trait. Yeah, but I didn't have... I, I mean, it definitely didn't pay off in high school in any sort of satisfying way. Like, I didn't have a girlfriend at all for all of high school. Um, but don't they see how chill you are? Uh, apparently not. <laughs> <laughs> I went to my senior prom in sweatpants uh, as, a, as a protest because it was on the same night of a play I was in. And I was in student council with the guy that was planning the prom. And I was like, you motherfucker, Greg. <laughs> You're going to pay for this. (laughs) You're going to pay for this by me not having a date and showing up in sweatpants and not having a good time. Then you'll see. Then you'll you'll understand what you did wrong. Um, What else did I think was cool about myself? I don't know. I really liked my group of friends also. It it was like my my parents had a two-story house. And so we would hang out in the bottom level of my house in the basement area. And so kids could come over through the back and would never have to see parents. Oh, Which cool. is like a big thing when you're going to hang out. Yeah. It's like you don't want to have to fucking deal with someone's parents. So people would just come and go from my place. And we had like a circle of friends. It was like 14 or 16 kids that would come and go. And we would just like play poker on the weekends. We had a pool table there. Um, like listen to music. And, and bullshit, I guess. Watch, we watched Dirty Work a bunch. Watch Big Lebowski a bunch. You sound really cool. I just realized yeah, like, is that I, cool? it had never clicked to me that nobody wants to see my parents. Uh, I think if a friend came over, I'd be like, come on, come over here. Uh, Let me show you my parents. Yeah. I, uh, you'll love that. <laughs> you'll love to see then, my parents. Then we'll, we'll go. Maybe, maybe your parents are amazing. Maybe you're right. Uh, my parents are great, but like people were super intimidated by my dad. He was, because uh, he was old. And he was big, like huge hands, tall guy, like very like strong looking guy. And when, so we were in high school, he would have been in his eighties. So it's just like, I think when you're a high schooler, you don't even know how to connect with that type of person. So my friends would just be like, Mr. Lippert, hello. I'm like trying to walk downstairs and like, he didn't want to talk to them either. I don't think so. It was a fine relationship. And my mom was great and friendly and whatever. Um, so like, I how did, how did your relationship with your dad evolve through like the next few years? Um, of like high school. Yeah. Um, I don't know how did it evolve? It was like, well, my senior year, he, uh, he owned apartments in Tucson that he rented out and he fell off the roof of one of them. So he was in the hospital for like the first half of my senior year wow. and like in physical therapy and stuff. And it was like. kind of close for him at that point and like so he was like in and out of a wheelchair after that for the rest of his life um uh art that my relationship with him was like with it was like pretty i mean he grew up in the 20s and like a farming family so he was like one of those just like not super emotional relationships but like you know we were close and we talked and like you know, it's not like you, like we would hug and say, I love you and all of that. It wasn't like a totally cut off relationship, but, um, it was definitely very like, you know, talk about whatever the base basketball team, like the wildcats and 
uh, tell him about school, and he would, like, he would every day, like, read the paper front to back, so he would, like, wow. tell me whatever was going on in the paper that he thought was interesting, or, like, stuff like that. He never watched movies, really. He, like, I don't think he was in a movie theater for the last, like, 40 years of his life. Um... So that, that was. So you thing. couldn't relate on the movie The Cable Guy. I, we couldn't talk about The Cable Guy at all. He would like. I remember he got really pissed off once when I was in college and we were watching Big Lebowski, and he was. Uh, I was watching it with my mom, uh, who like loves that movie. She loves the Coen Brothers, and he was just like, "What? What is with this goddamn language in this movie? Like, uh, like this was like <laughs> furious every time they cursed in it. I remember." Um, he had, like, really arbitrary things that he hated, and I guess that was one of them. Uh, but, like, my parents were... I think because my dad was older and my mom was, like, Israeli and didn't really understand the culture, like, I watched the movie Commando religiously when I was five years old, which is, like, Arnold Schwarzenegger kicking ass like, wow. and blowing things up. Like, I watched Terminator 2 when I was, like, seven or eight. Like, I think that just was something that they didn't understand or maybe care about, even. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, all that stuff was floating in your head. Yeah, it was all in there. I was, but all that Schwarzenegger action. Um, and you have a good relationship with your mom today. Yeah, yeah, we're we're really close. Cool. Um, yeah, we talk like every day. She, I mean, she, she's still got that like Israeli Jewish thing of like, has to be, like she'll call me and I rarely have anything to talk about. <laughs> so it's just kind of like, yeah, everything's the same. Uh, she called me a couple weeks ago too insist because the guy that voiced Tony the Tiger died okay. so she called me to insist that I need to be the next voice of it and like she was like in a panic was like <laughs> you gotta uh, just read on NPR like you have to yeah you gotta tell your agent about this and do this and I was like yeah okay okay thank you parents are always right about that yeah stuff. we just would listen yeah yeah if I was as motivated as my mom um your agent would make a few calls. <laughs> and then You'd I'd be, be in front of Kellogg's <laughs> doing your audition. <laughs> Richest man in the world. Um, so and then when, where did you go to college? Uh, I did two years at the University of Arizona. And, and I was in the their BFA acting program there, which is a probationary program. So they can cut you out of it after the first or second year. And I got cut after my second year. Um... So I, uh, I took a year off of college and moved to San Diego with my brother and then did two years at USC in their school of theater. So now your career from this point forward is all revenge it's against getting cut from that. It's 100% spite, absolutely. Uh, I, like, I, was, I was ready to quit acting before I got cut, and then they cut me, and I was like, all right, well, I'm going to prove you wrong now. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to go into broadcast journalism. Uh, no, it was like, I was actually really glad to be out of there um and it was a huge blessing not even in disguise like i knew right away it was a blessing i was like oh great good i'm not enjoying this and they can probably tell and that's why they cut me um and it was like i didn't want to be a classic theatrical actor and it was like classic theater training and it was done by a bunch of people who hadn't worked in the acting industry for 30 years which is like such a weird thing in college theater programs where it's just like I feel like you can learn the same type of acting from anybody, like that everyone can teach it, but if you're not learning it from people who are like who worked recently, like I think things change so much that like that's the type of advice you want is like someone that actually knows what is happening now, yeah, and is like because like 
all college theater prepared me to do was play like sixty-five-year-old Russian men in, Absolutely. In, in plays for old people. Like, I mean, if you go into your, uh, you know, Campbell's Soup commercial and you don't know how to do Grotowski, yeah, <laughs> you're gonna be screwed. You're gonna be screwed, especially if you can't, you know, do the beats of it. <laughs> think of the motivation that, like, really have the 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 character backstory. You're fucked. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was like. You know, I wasn't a leading role guy, and none of the plays they picked were cast twenty-something-year-olds anyway. So, it was, and it's same with USC for the most part. It's like I was still playing like, I, like old Russian men almost exclusively. In what uh, place? I was. Uh, um, what's it? I, in oh, what's the play? I'm forgetting them all now. Is it Chekhov? Uh, or no, no, no. It's... I wasn't. It was well. One was a. Um, uh, a month in the country. Okay. Uh, I played like a, a, a Russian dude, um, which it was a, have you read that play? No. Can you it's, do a line from it? I can't, I can't remember any of it actually. Um, I didn't have a ton of lines, but it was like the comedic poor Russian servants in this house that was all rich people. Um, What's that comedy? Which uh, nothing would relate to the student body of USC. Yeah, one. yeah, <laughs> yeah. They came and laughed at their poor Russian servants, and they're like, "That reminds me of my Mexican servants." Uh, they told me that. That's not a you know. Really? They no. <laughs> no, nobody talked to me about that. What I can't. I just want to remember it for the sake of memory. It was by Hart and Kaufman. What's that play? Was, uh, uh, um, fuck. I played a Russian in it. Whatever. It okay. Was. Um, you really did specialize in Russians. Yeah, I could do an Eastern European Russian-ish accent. I specialized in bad accents that they said were passing. I guess um, I played Chief Bromden in um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, the Big Chief. What was your voice for that? Uh, I think it was something in this world where it was a measured way of talking, but. There was a little bit of more sadness than what I'm doing now. Not that far from Brad Garrett and I really love Rainbow. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, uh, one of my friend's dads used to call me. What's his name in that show? Robert. Yeah. He called me Robert because of that guy. So I guess my voice had gotten low enough by senior year of high school that that someone would call me that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thanks for that compliment. I like his voice. I like it too. <laughs> hey. <laughs> You deserve a lot of compliments. Oh, thanks. I'll take them all. You too, man. Thanks. Cool uh, couch. <laughs> it's not that cool. <laughs> oh, it's got an L-shape to it. It's comfortable. It's really scratched up in the back. Oh, really? Cat cat scratch fever? Uh-huh. And we didn't... Uh, I love cat scratch fever. That's <laughs> the thing you say about a cat that's been too scratched by a cat. <laughs> Yeah, this furniture has got, if you post it on Craigslist, just say it's got cat scratch fever. <laughs> I think it looks alright. No, nobody's going to buy a couch with cat scratch fever. Maybe with cat scratches, but not with cat scratch fever. That's That sounds worse than bed bugs. Yeah, it does actually. You should, yeah, if you, if you put... <laughs> I don't want to buy anything with a fever. Yeah. Not a, not a, I don't want to buy a Fabergé egg that has a fever. <laughs> what is it? Cat scratch fever is a sex thing, is that right? In that I don't think so. song? I think cat scratch fever is that if certain cats scratch you, you can yeah. get this horrible illness called cat scratch fever that comes with bad fever. So you think it's fever. like zombie, a zombie type thing or something like that? I don't think it's paranormal. I think no. there's really 
uh, I think you can get a bad fever really? from getting cat scratches. Is that true? That's what I think. Uh, well, I'll, the song, I'll, the Ted Nugent song, it's all, check it's it all out. a bad metaphor. I'll check it out and <laughs> yeah, look post a follow-up. Uh, oh, you know, it's one of the Garfield books. Cat Scratch Fever? <laughs> <laughs> James Garfield. Cat Scratch Fever. <laughs> yeah, he was like FD, uh, FDR, had polio, James Garfield had Cat Scratch Fever. And that's how he died, yeah. famously. <laughs> had a very short term. <laughs> It was the only president to die of any sort of cat scratch fever in the White House. Um, so USC, uh, at what point did you meet Justin? Or, uh, and Jacob was also there? Yeah, Justin. Uh, there's a, the, a group there. Um, there were five improv groups at USC. So I had also the summer that I had taken a year off, had taken classes at Second City in Chicago and, like, had discovered long-form improv, basically. And did it blow your mind? Yeah, yeah. It was, like, the classic, like, I was doing short-form at U of A, um, and then, like, saw, uh, you know, TJ and Dave in Chicago and, like, went nuts for it. I saw this show called, uh, I think it was called Practice Shooting a Bear or Practice Scaring a Bear with uh, TJ Miller and, um, uh, what's his name, uh, Thomas Middleditch, and that fucking blew my mind. They did, like, a, a just a two-man like, traveling through the world show kind of thing. Um, yeah, I saw the Improvised Shakespeare Company. It was mostly I.O. stuff. I saw stuff at The Annoyance, and that all blew my mind because I'd just read McNapier's book. Um, and it was just like, oh, okay, this is fucking cool. This is, like, really good comedy. So then yeah. I, there was a moment where I was going to move to Chicago, but it was like, I'm not going to live in, in a city that's either hot or snowy all the time. Yeah. I love the city, but... And then a revelation that, like, the stuff you grew up loving is so much more tied to this kind of preparation right. yeah. than it is to Meisner and Grotowski. Yeah, for sure. That is a good... I haven't thought of it that way. But, like, yeah, that's, like, everyone I knew came from that background, not from, you know, classical theater training. Greg Kinnear also got kicked out of the University of Arizona theater program, though. So. And he proved them wrong. Yeah, he absolutely did. He hosted the, the Talk Soup show, so... You know, he's got it. Uh, but so uh, it, so that was like, I was like, maybe I'll start a long form theater in San Diego. Like when I was living there and there was no long form, I was like, yeah, I'll just start a theater. Like hadn't taken more than, I took what, the two weeks of Second City classes and was like, I could start a theater in this. Um, uh, but yeah, so I came out here, took a groundings class, loved the teacher. I had Drew Drogi and like he was he's so cool and was amazing but I just like the program didn't seem like something I wanted to do um uh and then just like had seen some shows at UCB out here and kind of discovered that I saw like Naked Babies with uh Rob Corddry and Brian Husky and John Bowie and Seth Morris uh and like that blew my mind like um, again because it was like then it was this element of like seeing people who I actually knew were successful doing these shows like at the time like T.J. Miller and Thomas Middleditch like were, hadn't done anything yet when I saw them in Chicago, um, but so here it was like, oh okay, there are people that like work in comedy to also do this kind of stuff, so that was really cool and interesting to me. And there's that aspect when you move to LA of that like celebrity fucker, even though these are like not celebrities, but it's like, oh, famous person that close to me is like it gets to you even if you want to be a cool guy. Yeah, like it's like it's cool to see that the units of separation aren't that. 
Yeah, yeah, uh, and like you know, I you train yourself to be cool about it or to care less because it's so common. But like at the, when I was like twenty one, it was like, whoa, yeah. Um, so anyway, I went to USC. Yeah, I had a, I mean, like a Del Close marathon in two thousand six. Yeah, like it was just crazy, like getting to chat with like Ed Helms and Jack McBrayer backstage. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine that would have just been like, especially yeah, those guys too are like both. What a what, what kind of weird world is this? Yeah, where this happens organically. It's like people that you would like actually consider to be in the realm of heroes of yours are like not far away from being peers, also, which is like really cool. So, um, there were the four, there were five improv groups at USC. There's Second Nature, which is the one I ended up on that did long form. There's Comedus Interruptus, which was short form. And that's where, like, the Good, na- good Neighbor guys came from, like Kyle Mooney, Beck Bennett, um, and uh, uh, Nick Rutherford. Were they contemporaries? No, they had graduated before I'd gotten there. They were contemporaries of Jacob and Justin's because they were there all four years. But um, I, I didn't, I only met them through those guys. Um, and then there was a group called the Shacks. Which was all uh, they would they were all Indian, so they would do half of their improv in uh, uh, Hindi and half in English. Wow! And they were amazing. Uh, like sixty percent just funny and forty percent like the idea is just insane to watch. And then there was like an all girls improv group, and then there ended up also being a uh, um, these pe- these people theater people started a uh, like Shakespearean improv group that Haley Huntley was on and some other people. Um, so anyway. I auditioned for Second Nature and Comedus Interruptus and ended up going on to Second Nature. And there was a story that I stood up in the audition room for Comedus Interruptus and said that I would rather be on Second Nature. I have no idea where that came from, but I was it always tickled me. Uh, <laughs> I like stood up into that. But like, so that was an yeah. eight-person group, and Jacob Reed was on it, Justin Michael, uh, and five other funny, cool people that, that you just wouldn't know, so I won't say their names. Um, and so we did long, like, UCB-style long form, um, and that was, like, those guys were my friends at USC. Like, that was my crew. Um, and, like, we just... Most of my senior year was skipping, like, a neuroscience class with Justin um, that we had both signed up for at 11 a.m. And, like, we would walk... I would meet him at his house. We'd walk halfway to class... And then be like, you want to do this? And he's like, no. And then we go back to his house and play video games. We play like whatever he had, whatever Nintendo system he had. <laughs> um, yeah. And so. As the neuroscience class happened. As the neuroscience. And we signed up for it with our friend Zach also, uh, who would always show up to class and then we would bail. <laughs> and so he would just be sitting there alone. Uh, looking around quietly looking Angry. around for us yeah um, but he was like a, a painfully polite person so he'd just be okay whatever guys okay cool like uh, he was on the improv group with us too um, so that was like the genesis of like my real like improv on, on my feet training there it was like having those weekly shows for audiences of like 60 students to 100 students or whatever and we ended up doing they, there was this festival there that we planned that was in its like fifth year when I got there called the Fracas Improv Festival. And it was an international improv festival where you get uh, only students would come from all over the country and perform Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night and take workshops with like UCB people, Groundlings people, IO people. And then there would be like panels on comedy and on improv with like Ed Helms did one. 
um, Brian Husky, like uh, Matt Walsh and uh, Ian Roberts did one. So it was like we had become huge, insane improv nerds. Like mostly Jacob Reed was my way into the nerddom of improv. Like he knew everything about everybody, and I was like super passionate about it. And like we kind of started like hero worshiping like Convoy and those guys. Like that's when they were winning the cage match before they had a show at uh, UCB, like a regular one. So we would go see them. Um, and like, yeah, I, I remember like Judith Fonzo Marx was the artistic director of UCB. That's when I knew UCB was like totally for me. Cause not only were they like, just like sensibility wise, like the thing I liked, but like out of UCB, IO, Groundlings, all the theaters we contacted for that festival, Drew Defonso Marx and then Neil Campbell were the uh, artistic directors of UCB and they were, would be, were so like understood the festival. They were like, this is so cool. Like anything you need, we'll get you in touch with our teachers. We'll get you at, like, they got us in touch with, yeah, like um, the human giant guys, like Rob Ewell and Paul Shear to do like a thing there. And so it was like, oh, this is, these guys actually care about it. And it was like so clear that it was a passion of theirs not just like I, like Groundlings would never respond to our emails and like we barely get in touch with them and there were still cool teachers from there that did it like Brian Palermo would do it and Drew Drogi and like really funny great guys but just the uh, I got the impression that the system of the school was different uh, to me that's so cool though yeah um and was Fracas a good like hookup opportunity. It was. It wasn't for me because I had a I had a girlfriend for most of uh, college um, that I met through a play that Justin wrote called Turkey Goose, which was a play as if it was written. It was a the, the tale of Thanksgiving giving as if it was written by nine year olds. So I played a, tr a a big tree with leaves, and I met my girlfriend through that. She played Tonto, uh, and she was uh, Japanese, so she played Tonto. As a, a relatively offensive Japanese stereotype. Wow. Um, but she had the right to. Yeah, she had the right to. I think it was her choice. As a, I don't think Justin was like, do this, but a little more like this. <laughs> uh, and so uh, I, we were dating through any of the main hook. Like, we would also go on tour up the coast and perform with other college improv groups. And those theoretically could have been like great hookup things, but like we all had girlfriends at the time. And you dated her until when? Until we moved in after college and dated for a year after. Uh, so. And is she the last serious girlfriend? She's the met? last serious girlfriend I had. Yeah. Um, that was like uh, just my lesson. Of course, you saying this to you is not uh, a tale that you'll agree with, but my lesson was like getting a serious relationship too young is just like too much for me. Like I wasn't like, we moved in together and I was like, what am I doing? I'm like 22 and I'm like, like I'm definitely not going to get married to this person. I want to date more people. So was the transition from college to adult life like pretty, did there feel like there was a big difference between college life and adult life or? Uh, well, I had, a, I don't know if a lot of people do this, but I had a year basically that I associate with just not get like the most fun, not giving a shit ever. Like I was waiting tables. I hadn't, I couldn't afford improv classes yet. I like didn't really know how to go about the world of acting. So I like, you know, was taking workshops and like, uh, like shot one thing, uh, for TV and, but like, what was that? Uh, workaholics. Cool. Um, yeah, I like took a casting director workshop, and then like the casting director called me in for that. What was your role on Workaholics? Um, I, it was an episode where they took mushrooms 
and thought they were being robbed but uh, by by people who were just IT guys. So I was an IT guy that they like tied up and thought was robbing them. Awesome. Um, yeah, it was really cool, and it was like before the it was we shot it before the show a year before the show came out even. So it was like a weird little. I thought it was going to be nothing, and like that show ended up being huge, which is cool. Um, but like. That was also like, oh, I shot a TV show. Now I'm going to just keep shooting TV shows all the time. Yeah. Uh, and that didn't happen. <laughs> uh, but it was like a cool... Uh, that, and that happened like right... That that week that I shot that was the week my long-term girlfriend and I broke up also. Um, and so then there was like, you know, a few months of just figuring it out. Like what exactly to start doing. And it wasn't until I started like buckling down in UCB classes. I started interning at UCB. Like kind of expanding my friend group and like hanging out more that uh like you know things just kind of started moving forward for me how many times did it take you to get on a team at ucb uh, i got on the first time i auditioned um which is like oh yeah there's a rumor that you got on a herald team pulled up from a class you pulled up from 301 yeah uh, but that didn't happen that did not happen i wish it had that would have been cool i actually wouldn't want that because then everyone would be watching you being like all right, prove yourself. But, like, I have no idea how... I can only imagine that, like, Berg started that as a prank rumor. Because I, I can't imagine someone just... A student just casually saying it or, like, another performer without actually having heard it. Um, Somebody dreamt it and then thought they'd heard it. Yeah. Yeah, and they're like, yeah, that's true. But, like, there was... It was so cool because, like, I was getting to the point where, like... People I idolized were saying cool, nice things to me. Before I was even on a team, it was like they were like, I, I put a lot of salt in people I respect being nice to me, kind of more than you probably should. Like it should, you should just be happy with who you are. But like, I was in four hundred one the week, and I was graduating three or four weeks after auditions, and you couldn't audition if you were in four hundred one at the time. Um, and so I emailed and just politely was just like. Hey, I'm not being presumptuous. I don't think I'll make a team, but like, I know it'll take me a few times to audition since I'm graduating in a month. Could I audition just to start getting reps in and whatever? And like Alex Berg sent me like the nicest email afterwards of just like, and he wasn't even AD at the time, but was like, Hey, your name came up and we like talked about it. And like, it's not going to happen. It wouldn't be fair for everyone, of course, but like, just know that like people like you and like, think you're funny and like, keep doing it. And, like, little things like that were, like, so huge for me. Um, and, like, motivating. So, like, I had a year, basically, when I was done with 401 of just, like, working on getting better at improv. And there, there was an element of it then before there were, like, a ton of indie shows of, like, like, just getting good through getting reps and practice groups and classes and stuff so that, like, the first time people see you, they're like, oh, man, that guy, like, they never saw me people saw me grow a ton, but they never saw me at my worst because I spent so much time kind of under the radar. It yeah. feels like. And being in college. and Yeah. Yeah. Um, where like uh, now I think like with so many indie shows, you can see someone going from like, you know, bad in the sense of just inexperienced to experienced and good. And like, you just gain so much with confidence and stage. Like a year is a lot of time if you're doing improv every week or every day or whatever. Definitely. Um, so I think there was, like, an element of that, too. Um, and, you know, I tried to, when I auditioned, like, I wanted everyone that I was auditioning for to know who I was. Like, I took classes with the people that I thought were good. 
um, so that I could learn from them. And I also wanted like their, I, I wanted it, I wanted them to have to say no instead of have to say yes, if that makes sense. Like I wanted them to be like, you don't want to be go in and do well and have people be like, but I haven't seen a lot of him. Like, so I don't know if that'll be consistent. You want it to be like, oh, I've seen a lot of him and he had a bad audition. <laughs> I'd rather yeah. that than the other way around. Totally. Um, yeah, so that, um, yeah, that was a long answer to that question. But an, a, a relatively interesting story, I think, is, so Harold auditions happened. I auditioned for Winslow the day after my dad passed away. Like, I, he had a heart attack. And so I, he was in the hospital for like four or five days in Tucson, and I drove down there, and he passed away on a Thursday, and then I like flew out on Friday and auditioned. And I felt like there was like an energy I had that weekend that was like, oh, I got to kill this. Like, I was like very focused on it and everything. Um, so that was a weird week of my life. Yeah, a lot of like, things happening all at the same time. Yeah, a bunch of like major changes. Um. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry that happened. No, that's it. Thank you. Uh, yeah, that's not... Um, it's one of those things that, like, uh, you forget that, like, it's hard to hear for other people also. Like, I can... I, you know, you deal with it your own way, but I can, like, mention it casually without feeling bad about it. And I forget that other people are like, oh, that's a huge thing, like, which is also probably just a way of, for me, of, like, ignoring dealing with it every once in a while. It's like not putting too much salt into it conversationally. Um, what were your expectations for Harold and like what you felt like it would do for you? Um, I, I, I feel like the year before I had seen like someone like Anthony Gio go from like a guy who I knew was pretty funny to a guy I knew was amazing. And it was just from him having like a year of experience on a, on a stage in front of a full audience, practicing every week, performing every week, getting notes from the people who are the best at what they do. And so I was excited to like have that experience of like, I feel like, you know, happy with where I am, but like just the amount you grow from having an opportunity is like what I was really looking forward to. And like Alex Fernie was our coach our first year and it's like, he's just amazing. And like, you learn so much and like grow so much. I mean, it's like, you know, uh, it's, you, you, you start playing up. You're always playing up. You're playing, like, to the better, um, you know, people on your group, to the better coach, the awesomest coaches who really care about you, to, like, audiences who are, like, really savvy. And so you grow, I think, exponentially through that. And I was, like, looking forward to having that opportunity. Yeah. How many years were you working in, like, that restaurant? You were working in Carl Stoics? Carl Strauss, yeah. Carl Strauss. Carl, Carl, Carl. Carl Stoics is a great name, whatever that is. Carl, you were in Carl Strauss for two years after you got on a team, or um, less? I was there. I graduated from USC in 2009, and I quit that job in 2013. And I got on Winslow in 2011. And were you, f was there a certain amount of frustration for those two years that you were like still having to do that kind of waitering night job? Um, the, you know what? The frustration was more my first two years there. By, the, my, by my last couple of years there, I had set up my schedule beautifully for exactly what I wanted. I was making just enough money to like eat food, pay for gas and pay the bills. Like, and I, that was perfectly fine for me because I, I didn't want to be there. Five day, I didn't want to be there Saturday nights. I, like, 
Uh, I didn't want to be there when the money was the biggest because I wanted my own free time and my own sanity. And, like, had the luxury of, like, bartending there during the day was relatively fine money if you live a small life. So the last couple years there weren't that bad. It was, like, the first... The the meaning of having the job is worse than what the job is. Like, just the implication of being waiting tables means that you're not making money doing comedy yet. Right. So I think I hated that more than I hated waiting on people. I don't mind waiting on people. I don't mind being, like in the service industry. I kind of like it actually. Um, but I just hated that the experience of knowing I had to go to a job that wasn't the job I wanted to have as a career. But then you got to leave it because friendship all stars right. friendship yeah. happened. Right. Yeah. And so how did that come about? Um, so Justin and I, uh, um, had this idea, uh, well, Justin was talking about how he really wanted to do a Guillermo del Toro impression. He thought, and like we, we both loved him. And, uh, like, uh, I was talking about how funny Ron Perlman was to me, just his existence as a human, <laughs> I think. And so we were trying to figure out how to do it, like, doing a live show as them or, like, just, like recording something. And uh, ju- uh, what, I don't know whose idea it was, but then we just started talking to, like, Harry Chaskin, who Justin grew up with as old friends, and I met in college through Justin. Um and Harry was an animator and director at Stupid Buddy Studios doing stuff like Robot Chicken. He had worked on um, Frankenhole at, uh, uh, I think it was called Shadow Machine, which became, uh, and then started being made by Starburns. But anyway, he had done a ton of animation and he's a fucking genius. He's like a really talented, smart, uh, creative guy. And so we start, the three of us started talking about trying to make a Ron Perlman and Guillermo del Toro TV show where we voiced Ron and Guillermo. Uh, and kind of develop the characters as kind of this odd couple where Ron's just a big doofus and Guillermo's this like overexcited, like, uh, uh, you know, a gregarious Mexican director. Um, and so, uh, we just started playing with that and improvising it, uh, and recorded, wrote and recorded like a three minute short, um, and Harry took it into the guys at Stupid Buddy Studios, and, and we put the voice, the radio play to a, a storyboard, which is called an animatic. And we took it into them and showed them that, and they, they were like, okay, cool. Uh, they were also trying to get Harry to come animate on Robot Chicken. So they were like, if you come animate for us, we'll also um, give you the space for three weeks to make this. So Harry animated it himself over three weeks. Um, we like reached out to people he knew to make the puppets. Harry worked really hard and made the puppets. We painted the sets and stuff. And just made a short, and then it ended up people really liked it. And so we tried to pitch it as a TV show and then learned that parody laws are such that you can't just make a ton of money off of someone else's likeness in a TV show. So we ended up pitching it as a web series and taking it to that place, El Studio, which is a Lexus-owned production company, um, and they bought it, but parody laws are also such that you still can't make a 10-episode web series about two people. So we took the idea of kind of like weird celebrity buddies and made 10, 10 different episodes of it with like um, Ira Glass and Garrison Keillor and uh, uh, Ian McKellen and um, Patrick Stewart and all that. I feel like you guys doing that show... And it being so good, like, was a personal revelation for me because it made me go like, oh, that's more what the dream is than, like, getting staffed on a show as a writer. Like, I had always thought that was, like, oh, yeah. the best thing that could happen would be, like, getting to be a staff writer on a show. Yeah. And I saw that and I was like, 
these guys are getting to create their own thing and run it. Yeah. And it looks like that looks well, like the most fun. It was the most fun. It was amazing. And it like it really was an example. It was the first thing I made that was like the thing that I was passionate about and it was a really weird idea and it was also the first thing I got paid to make afterwards. Like it was the first thing I made for free of just like let's follow this through. And it was the first thing someone paid me for and it was like the biggest lesson of just like oh just make what you think is funny all the time. Yeah. Uh, instead of making what you think someone else wants or like you know, it's like, well, I want to write on The Office, so I'll make a web series that's similar to that, or, like, whatever, where it's like, eh, if you're putting all your time and free energy into it, you might as well make the thing you want and then have, you know, the the whatever, Brooklyn Nine-Nine people see it and be like, hey, do you want to be staffed on my show? Or someone else see it and be like, hey, this is too weird, do you want to create a different show? Um, it, yeah, it was kind of like a revelation for me, too, of just, like, Maybe it was just dumb luck also that it happened to be a fun, good idea at the right time and everything I make from here on out will not get made. But like the only lesson I can take from it is that it worked and I would love to that to be my whole life is either failing miserably at the thing that I think is really good and funny or having it turn into a thing. Yeah, but I mean, it just feels like between that and like all your stuff with Big Grande and your Herald team, you're just like killing it right now. Thank you. That's really cool. Um, what percentage of the time, like these days, do you feel really optimistic? Like you're definitely going to have the career you want. And what percentage of the time are you scared? I'm scared all the time uh, <laughs> uh, of just like. I, I'm pretty certain that I'm going to at least make a living doing comedy. There's a million different ways to do it. I could I could be like 60 and be te just teaching classes at UCB and I'd be happy. Um, and you've got, you're a shoo-in for that right now. Uh, by the time you're 60. Uh, yeah, by the time I'm 60, <laughs> they'd have to let me, at least by the rule of just like, well, he's been around long enough. Uh, um, About 30 years. Or yeah. no, 40 years. 40 then. years, yeah. I could be a good teacher in 40 years. I'm certain of it. Uh, um, but, uh, I'm just burp, sorry. I'm like, so, just generally, like, I'm, f the coolest thing is being friends with the funniest people right now. Like, I, don't, I am constantly thinking about, like, what's going to happen with my life and what I'm going to get, you know, be doing. But, like, just through comedy, I know... I would say at minimum 50 people that are really cool and easy to be around and the funniest people, some of the funniest people I think in the world and the most talented people. So it's like that kind of gives you the faith that something will, you know, worst case scenario, fucking, you know, Tarver and Rosenberg are going to have their own TV show and at least let me be staffed on it. Like, or like, you know, at some point, you know, you're going to have, like, an amazing Hamilton 100 sketch show and I'll be able to contribute to it. Like, it's all those little things that are, like, that That gives me the faith of, like, I, whatever I'm doing, I'm making stuff with the coolest, funniest people that I've ever met. Uh, so that in the end, all of it comes down to not burning your bridge with Rosenberg. Yeah. <laughs> no, he's not going to be successful, actually. I, I think he's just... <laughs> all I have to do is be friends with him, and, uh, but not so close that when he gives up on comedy, I'll feel like I have to be still friends with him. <laughs> <laughs> really good... Better strategy. Yeah, a way better strategy. Um, but, like, I'm sure, like, 
you, you, do you get that? Like, there, you know, there's that constant. There are people that you get jealous of sometimes. They're like, oh, man, they're having a lot of success. But, like, most of the time I see people around me, like, doing really cool, good things. And I'm just like, the fact that I know the person that's creating that is just awesome to me. Me too. Uh, and, like, I'm so happy for... I, I almost feel like I'd be bragging more if I said like how cool my friends are than if I'm bragging about things I've created. Yeah. Like, cause it's just like, I, I don't think people are that lucky for the <laughs> most part. You get like, you're lucky to have like two or three good friends. And I feel like on any given night I could like find people I love and hang out with them yeah. and like laugh with them and, or, and like not even do much and have them crack me up. Absolutely. Uh, which well, I that's, think that's how I feel, cool. man. I feel lucky to know you all together. Yeah, you too, buddy. Um, and thanks for coming to talk to me. Yeah, thanks for having me. I hope this, this is, is, really fun. is a cool thing. I mean, I know it's a cool thing, but I hope my interview is a cool thing. I hope it's a cool thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, dude. Good luck. Thanks, man. So that was my interview with Dan Lippert. I really hope you liked it. If you want to see Dan perform live, you can see him almost every Monday with his Herald Team Winslow at UCB. Check the UCB calendar to see his next show with Big Grande. And you should really go to www.friendshipallstars.com to see the show he created with Justin Michael. It's Claymation. He does a lot of the voices in it. And it's an awesome show. Special thanks to my producer, Cece Pierce, to Casey Trila for all the music in this episode, and to our sound editor, Joe Burge. This has been On the Cusp. That's your outro music. <laughs>